0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu.
1: Welcome back to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. If the name Edgar G. Ulmer doesn't ring a bell, then let me give you a hint. He's a filmmaker. IMDb lists nearly 100 films for him between 1920 and 1964. So if you're still drawing a blank on Ulmer's name, then you need to do two things. Seek out his films, many available on YouTube, and read the new biography on him, Edgar G. Ulmer, a Filmmaker at the Margins, by Noah Eisenberg. Eisenberg is director of screen studies at the New School. He says he became interested in Ulmer because Ulmer was such a famous and indeed infamous storyteller. Ulmer began his filmmaking career doing set and production design work in the 1920s for acclaimed directors like F.W. Murnau, Fritz Lang, and Ernst Lubitsch. Ulmer made his directing debut on the 1930 film People on a Sunday. Despite his association with Austrian and German émigré directors who would find fame in Hollywood, Celebrity would prove elusive for Ulmer, and he ended up at such unglamorous places as Hollywood's netherworld known as Poverty Row. Yet he still managed to deliver a strikingly diverse array of work, ranging from the darkly atmospheric Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi star The Black Cat, to the all-black cast of Moon Over Harlem, to the classic noir Detour. Ulmer was amazingly prolific. He consistently made visually dynamic films on painfully small budgets from the 1930s to 1950s, he may not have had money, but he had style to burn, as well as a burning passion to make movies. And that's what was celebrated Sunday night at the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival in San Diego. Here's audio from the panel that Horrible Imaginings Festival director Miguel Rodriguez moderated before the screening of Ulmer's 1944 film Bluebeard. The film starred John Carradine as the infamous serial killer. The panelists were Ulmer's daughter, Ariane Ulmer-Sipes, and his biographer, Noah Eisenberg. Before hearing the lively panel discussion, let's start with a trailer for Bluebeard.
2: He searched for the beauty hidden in woman's heart. In his arms, many women were beautiful. But the flame of passion exposed the ugliness of their souls. Ugliness he destroyed. He searched on and on until he found
3: Lucille. I'm going to tell you something that no other living person knows. Then maybe you'll understand how much I do love you.
2: Then you think the owner of this cravat is the murderer? Very likely. Lucille!
3: You couldn't do that to me. Not you, Lucille. And even if you could, I wouldn't let you. I wouldn't let you turn against me, too. Oh, no, not you, Lucille. Are you?
0: Ah!
3: Quickly! Honor! right. Let's scan.
0: So, hi. What is your name and what do you do?
2: <laughs> My name is Ariane Omer. Can you hear me? <laughs> And I am the daughter of Edgar G. Ulmer, but I myself had a varied career within the motion picture medium. First of all, I was brought up on the set from my second day of life, since my mother was ransomed out of her hospital, which was a maternity hospital, by the money that had been collected from the crew on the green fields and the second day they let me out with my mother and she went directly to be the uh, script supervisor.
0: <laughs> so, that's, a great, that's a great line.
2: Yes, <laughs> on the set and I was literally nursed on the set and everybody took care of me on the crew. Whenever she was busy, they handed me around. It explains a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I now have the Edgar G. Ulmer Preservation Corp, which is a nonprofit, and our activity is dedicated to the preservation of Ulmer's works. Uh, The print that you're going to see tonight literally was uh, preserved uh, through our auspices. We were very lucky to find the negative of it at the C.N.C., which is uh, the big uh, uh, place in, in, in France. They still had a negative, believe it or not. And uh, it was uh, preserved by them, and then I bought it and brought it to the Academy who now holds all of uh, my collection And uh, I work directly with, of course, the Academy, uh, but I also work with UCLA, USC, uh, anybody who will have me. (laughs) But the best of my collection is sitting at the Academy. Unfortunately, we have been able to find many, many materials throughout the country and throughout the world, because usually what happens is that a print lands up in Russia and nobody's gonna ship it back in its distribution. And uh, so it shows up like 40 years later maybe in somebody's collection somewhere on the other side of the earth. And uh, a good part of my work is research because it's thanks to the archives throughout the world uh, and collectors the people that I used to hate who had you know 16-millimeter prints stuck underneath their bed, who had stolen them usually from a television entity in the old days, turned out, of course, to be ec- exceptionally useful for me at this juncture because I was able to find stuff that I never could have found otherwise, especially on a lot of the films that never had any real international distribution at all. I mean, you know, something like Girls in Chains never became a classic. (laughs) No, believe
0: it or not, Girls in Chains is a woman in prison film from way, way back.
2: That didn't start in the 80s and 70s. (laughs) No, 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 we had a sexy film already at PRC. So uh, (laughs) I think I've given enough of my (laughs) giving. Oh, we're gonna hear a lot more from you, but
0: I'm gonna move it over to your right.
2: Why are you here, Noah?
3: because I spent my teenage years about 10 miles away from here. So it's just a return home. That's why I'm here. To be wow. To, be with, you all, to be with you all tonight. No, I, uh, I uh, also happen to have collaborated very closely with Ariane on the biography that's now been given away with these brilliant answers to the trivia questions concerning Edgar G. Ulmer. And about a year, a little over a year ago, uh, uh, in January of two thousand and four, at DG Wills in La Jolla, California, we all spent an evening together there, and that's when we met Miguel, and that's when we learned about his work as a as a programmer, uh, and oh, no, kind of fuzzy. A, well, and as, a, as, a, as a, a a a horror film maven, um, and that's essentially why I'm here. So and to to enjoy with you this exquisite 35 millimeter print of Bluebeard, uh, and talk a bit about it beforehand with with you and i think we're we want to hear about
0: ulmer's output as a whole and uh, well i've got you'll see i've got it all right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first thing i actually want to talk about is something a little more philosophical and that's drive uh, when i read your biography and when you and i speak about edgar g ulmer the first thing i think about is this festival is a celebration of independent film and I see that coming straight from Edgar G. Ulmer because this is a man with, who was given very little resources and still managed to make films and was relentless at making films. He was highly prolific. So what drives some people to create and create and spend their lives telling stories, even through adversity?
2: Well, I think that uh, adversity is the mother (laughs) (laughs) of most of these kind of independent films as the person exposes the issues that they will never comprehend fully and examine their interiors that usually have been damaged to a good extent. And of course, he is a child of the First World War. And his father died when he was like 10 years old. And to give you an idea of the kind of trauma that he faced, he was sent at that age uh, to Innsbruck uh, to bring his father's uh, coffin back because his mother was busy in, in Vienna taking care of the other children that she had, his sisters and his brother. If you can visualize a 10-year-old boy bringing back his father in a coffin. This was his experience from the early years. He stood on the bread lines that were part of the tragedy of the fact that the Austrians lost the war. And uh, there was no food or martial plan like we have today. And he was literally um, sent away to Sweden by an... I think it was uh, at that point uh, some kind of, what, who was it? He was it?
3: under the joint auspices of the Huber Commission and a Jewish aid organization that sent him and his siblings to, to, to Sweden uh, in the late years of the First World War when his mother Henrietta could no longer care for the children.
2: No, she could no longer uh, you know, feed them. They were, the rationing was so desperate. I mean, they were given like one loaf of black bread And, uh, you know, they would cut that in half. And the bad story that I heard in my childhood from all of the, the sisters and the brother, aside from Edgar, was that she would take half for herself and have the four children slice up the other half. I mean, they were desperate and starving. So I think that he was very damaged. He was traumatized. And he was examining this, you know, part of himself and the cruelty that was around. He was a, a director that I think was attracted to Modonte, which uh, Noah can tell you about.
3: Well, I mean, the, 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 the connection that I'd actually like to speak of more directly is between the first film that you referenced in your trivia question, namely The Black Cat of 1934, and the film that we're about to watch. Because from the time that he's first, his first venture into his first foray into horror, <laughs> in the Universal horror cycle in '34 with Bellocchio, Boris Karloff, and the Black Cat, you must be indulgent of Doctor
1: Verdigast's weakness. He is the unfortunate victim of one of the commoner phobias, but in an extreme form. He has an intense and all-consuming horror
3: soon after that he was already slated to direct Bluebeard and it was announced in the, in the trade press and then he <laughs> fell out of favor with, with Carl Emley. But the point that I think that, that's worth bringing up in terms of facing adversity and dealing with this, this sort of working through certain traumas, whether it's the First World War in the case of the Black Cat, or other traumas, going back in this case to, 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 to Faust actually, into <laughs> this kind of this, uh, this uh, over-ambitious artist figure in the in, in the character played uh uh by uh uh John Carradine mm. and uh Morel as he's called in the film. Uh vis-à-vis this Mephistolian figure played uh Lemarté as he's called in the in, in the film Bluebeard we're about to watch played by Ludwig Stössel who's the you may know him from uh, he, he's Herr Leuchttag in that brief exchange in Casablanca, the such much, mm-hmm. when you, you know, sweetness, dear, how much such much, those are his few lines in Casablanca, but he plays this Mephistolian figure. And then you have this Margareta character in Jean, played by Gene Parker, who'd also been in an, another film at PRC just before with uh, Edgar, directed by Edgar O'Meara, called Tomorrow We Live. All of these, uh, specifically these two films, I think are really wrestling with certain demons. Mm. Um, in the first case, the demon of the First World War. In the second case, I think it's just this larger Germanic lineage of the Faust uh, story from Goethe and even before. Um, and I think that he, you know, even though he came to this country rather early as a, as a youngster, he was, he was just 20 years old, I think he brought with him those 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 demons so to speak here at this horror film festival of yours <laughs> and, and and i think he was in fact wrestling with many of these demons his whole life the trauma that that Ariane s- described so vividly the the, the bread the bread lines uh and just this extra- extraordinary um uh, scarcity austerity mm-hmm. during the war years in vienna um and then even after i mean you mentioned being born and needing to <laughs> i don't know how you how you put it but basically scraped together enough Enough money for the production that they were then working on, which is the first of four Yiddish pictures, Green Fields from 1937. Um, his whole life was about, I mean, talk about independent cinema and sort of the, the, the uh, predicament, the existential predicament, the exigencies of being an independent filmmaker. You're always, you know, whether you're putting it on credit cards today or whether you're searching, you know, mortgaging, the, as it was called Mortgage Hill, the home on Kings Road. <laughs> oh, and we Batonha mortgaged it
2: every time that he was ready to do something.
3: No Kickstarter. No. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Alas.
2: Fortunately, I can even remember the guy at the Bank of America who was his friend who he would go back and forth with getting the mortgage because as soon as he would get some, you know, something finished and he was working on something, I mean, he didn't get that much money, you know, even when he was at PRC. And uh, he only had a contract, really, at the
3: end. Uh, with Bluebeard. But Bluebeard, he signs a one-year contract with Bluebeard. Mm. Uh, and this comes right on the, sort of hot on the heels of, of, of Jive Junction, which was a, you know, one of the quickies that he made for PRC. He wasn't especially proud about this. And he was trying to wrestle with another demon, which was commercialism. Right. He didn't just want to make movies for the sake of commercialism. He wanted them to have something artistic some sort of aesthetic premium that he could feel actually proud of. And, and in that regard, he's very much aligned with the Caradine character in this, in this film, and this, you know, the, the Mephistolian pact, Mephis, yeah, there we go, That's Mephistolian pact, this pact with the devil that, 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 that Caradine makes in selling his art. He's a sort of frustrated painter in mm-hmm. this film. And Omer was not proud of certain films that he had to make because he had to put food on the table. Um, this was a film that was actually kind of a prestige film for PRC. It was a film that, when it appeared, the Hollywood Reporter really hailed it as 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 a major picture, even though it was made for this little, uh, you know, uh, shoestring uh, budget. At PRC, sometimes its initials thought to represent uh, pretty rotten crap, Um, (laughs) (laughs) and and this, however, was one that carried. Unlike Detour, I was really surprised that nobody yelled out that movie. But unlike Detour, perhaps is among his best known. Films. This is a a budget that's almost uh, twice that. It's one hundred and seventy thousand dollars for Bluebeard, which is a big budget.
2: Oh yeah, (laughs) Yeah. the film he made just before it was ten
3: thousand. Exactly. (laughs)
2: Ten thousand (laughs) dollars. That you know. And these things were shot in very few days. Those ten thousand dollars. You think?
3: Here he had nineteen days. Yes, this was a a big film. Six-day pictures. He'd done these, you know, two-day pictures. Here he had nineteen days and one hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Out of curiosity. Do you know the number for the black cat? Uh, oh yeah. 100, it's a hundred and change, it's, it, it's about a third of what they spent on Frankenstein and I think a quarter of, 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 of Dracula, if I get that right. It but Universal. it was the most
2: successful picture that year. In
3: 1934, it yeah. was the highest grossing picture at Universal.
2: So, you know, exceptional things happened, but that didn't help him any because he was already fooling around with my mother and, and the, he, he got blackballed. So, <laughs> you don't fool around with married ladies. Yeah, can we,
0: can we, how do you feel about us talking about the blackball story?
2: I feel fine about it, nobody's yeah, alive don't. anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, so Ulmer came, he, he, he worked on a major studio film the Black Cat for Universal Pictures, Uncle Carl Lemley's Studio. What happened? Why didn't he make another film you
3: there? Start you, you, start? you start. I'll start? Okay. Uh, at the time, Ulmer uh, had already worked in the art department at Universal for a number of years. He directed some two real, two real westerns with uh, Willie Weiler.
2: Yeah, I have to intersperse yeah. only to say that people mm-hmm. don't realize he was an art director from the time he was 18, we have established. Mm-hmm until he was already 28 or 29. The man had a full career. Uh, He would have never shifted, except for the fact that Myrna was killed uh, in an accident. He had worked on Sunrise. Maybe some of you know. How many of you know what Sunrise is? Okay, so. And all uh, the rest
0: of you need to see it. (laughs) Yes,
2: it's one of the great classics, you know, and one of the last, Silent Films that was made. Um, it's an unbelievably wonderful film, and he worshiped her now. And he would never, I don't think, have even thought of directing. if he had lived, he would have continued being part of his troupe, because he had made quite a few films with him. But uh, it wasn't to be. And I think that uh, it is why we first see him even conceiving that he would be working with uh, people in Universal Mm -hmm. and uh, learning his craft as a director. I mean, he started on these little two real Westerns, Mm -hmm. you know.
3: Yeah, and so when he was tapped to direct this, he was a mere 29 years old. Uh, This was his chance to direct at a major studio. This was what seemed to be an auspicious start for a very, very promising career as a young emigre director in Hollywood. He happened to fall in love with Shirley, then Alexander, born Castle, or Kessler, but yeah. called Castle, um, who was Car- Uncle Carl Lemley's beloved nephew, Max Alexander. Um, and Uncle Carl Lemley, who is Ogden Nash, Jr., once quipped, had a big family, and everybody would gather around his tables, a uh, uh, table on Sunday uh, for, for these big, lavish Sunday uh, uh, lunches. Omer was there. Uh, Shirley was there next to Max Alexander. Max Alexander was very, very close with, with, with Carl Jr. Um, and once the word, you know, word word got out that that the uh, Edgar had run off with Shirley, um, the plans to make Bluebeard, which was going to was slated to be a Universal picture,
2: there was already artwork done on it. Yeah, mm. yeah
3: immediately. The invited. posters existed. Immediately scrapped. So so uh, that's how we became blackballed. It was for love, not for politics. Uh, though in the 40s, he definitely was working with plenty of fellow fellow travelers, if not card carrying. Yeah, members. he didn't believe
2: <laughs> in any government. He was really, he didn't trust any established government. Uh, he felt that they all were, you know, and then if they get power, yeah. I don't care whether they're socialist, communist, or capitalist. Uh, he felt that uh, that they're. The thing that became important was their own uh, power, no longer really caring about people. And so he had very little trust in any established anything. So he was smart enough not to join the Communist Party, although he was a very socialist-minded man. Um
3: Yo, I, yes. if, if, if I could just... Please. it's not too tedious and not too academic, there's there's there is a lovely citation from the Hollywood Reporter when this film was released. Oh, Bluebeard, for for Bluebeard. For Bluebeard. Which Absolutely. I think gives you yeah. a sense of this trajectory from 1934 to 1944. So a full decade from the Black Cat to Bluebeard and this waiting, long waiting period. And wow, was it a securitous route to get mm-hmm. to Bluebeard. But the but the review is is really important, I think, for understanding the achievement of somebody who was working with such modest means and who managed to, well, as uh, at least the Brothers Grimm would have, it's, you know, spent uh, uh, gold out of straw. <laughs> so, so, so here we have it, it says, it has been the avowed and it advertised purpose of PRC for some time to lift itself above the status of an organization devoted to the making of lower budget films and strike out for a better trade by pouring into the market films with a flexible budget, which means, of course, that cost is not, a consi- not the consideration as compared with quality. PRC has done this with Bluebeard. It is the kind of picture any company or any producer would like to release. It is a class product from start to finish with every opportunity to entertain, regardless of expense utilized to the fullest. In comparison with other movies with l- the same premise, it is head and shoulders uh, superior. Producer Leon Frumpkes and his associate, Martin Mooney, have taken pains to see that no detail in whatever department was overlooked in the making of this this film a somber, gripping melodrama that moves towards its conclusion relentlessly. Edgar Ulmer's direction is studied and exact. There is a gentleness and an understanding permeating the entire film that can be attributed to him." Not until Truffaut writes his loving review of The Naked Dawn do you get this sort of uh, <laughs> uh, press, and that's a full decade later.
2: I have to add just one little thing that I think is very important. That is that the cinematography in this film is unique. It's really wonderful, and it was done by Eugene Shufton. Do any of you know, would you raise your hand if you've ever heard of Shuftan? He uh, was an incredibly gifted uh, cinematographer and had actually worked on the very first film that Dad co-directed. Mention on so Yeah, <laughs> People he, he, on Sunday. He
3: was the old man on the set. He was 34, the rest were in their
2: 20s. <laughs> and uh, he was a very funny guy if you're even interested in that. But he later on, he never could get into the, uh, the union here. So, he was working always out of New York or Paris and uh, he got to do this film uh, because Dad really covered it, you know, uh, to a certain extent at the first beginning area because he had a, another director.
3: Yeah, he, he, I think he's has credit on this one, if I'm not mistaken, as production designer or they would give but him a the credit. But cinema- he's the real cinematographer. He's the
2: cinematographer and Dad always used him if he could because he really, he, I, my mother and Shuftan and Erdodi were the magic of Ulmer at PRC. These were three people uh, which he really depended on. Can
0: you talk about Erdodi and who that is?
2: Well, Erdody was a Hungarian uh, who had come to this country and he worked at PRC with dad and uh, he had a tremendous background he was not you know just a guy who a schlepper who was hired as a as a music guy like at the studios this was a man that his father had been the last living student of uh, Liszt okay and he had you know conducted uh, huge orchestras and things like that so he had a really Fantastic background, and of course Dad and he became extremely close and unfortunately, before dad uh, when he moved away you know from PRC just in that period, uh, Erdoty died uh, so he 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 was older than Dad. he came from an older generation. Did he
0: compose the music on Bluebeard Was that? He, I believe, yes. is responsible for Bluebeard yeah, sure He's is. certainly
3: for responsible for, 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 for Detour. He's responsible yeah. for... And, 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 and as Ariane said, yes, when Omar was asked late in life in his two-part interview with Peter Bogdanovich which of the films he, he considered to be among his best, he said, you could, you could tell this by the cinematographer that I worked with, namely Eugen Triftan. And he was extremely, extremely indebted to Erdody as well in terms of music. And, and in fact, that the, the connection to Liszt he gave a baton that his, uh, so this is Leo Erdoti gave to Omer a baton that Erdoti's father had received directly from Liszt, and when he would conduct, uh, uh, excuse me, when he would direct, he would hold the baton as if he were conducting. <laughs> and uh, when it came to, 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 to working with uh, Hedy Lamar on The Strange Woman, he would also use the baton to smack her ankles yes. when she wasn't delivering the lines. Do you the remember
0: that, the the time he... <laughs> I'm sorry, you just mentioned yeah. the strange woman in Hedy
3: Lamarr, yeah, and I'm I
0: remember you did this great Im- impersonation of Oh, Homer oh. <laughs> <That's>,
3: <laughs> when he lost his mind at yeah, Hedy Lamarr. Yeah, Lamar. yeah, yeah, that's later. That's when he works with her over in Europe on The Love of Three Queens, one oh, of the few pictures that queens. he stormed off of. <laughs> um, he was very, very... Uh, devoted to whatever he worked on, and it was very rare that he gave up. In this instance, he gave up after working with her on one of the three, the three installments of this film known as The Love, Love, Love of Three Queens, um, and she would not, how does the scene go? She would not stay within the frame as he wanted the shot to be composed. And worse than that, she was working with a young actor and she kept on grabbing his head and she would pull his head towards her bosom. <laughs> and he could not get the, 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 the shot. And there is just this outrageously funny scene that is reported in the young actor's memoirs, and I'm blanking out his name at this very moment, but where he imitates the accent. Where he says, Miss Lamar, if you will not take this boy's head out of your bosom, I will have to make the shot in the double. It will be a double, not a single shot, it will be a double. (laughs) And he had this very booming voice, if you hear in the interviews with Peter Bogdanovich, and this very strong Teutonic accent. Dickie Moore, who just passed away last week, who starred in Jive Junction, the Mm -hmm. picture just before this, he worked with with Omar on, on Jive Junction, and he said he was a wonderful man, his accent was really, really hard to understand for a, young, for a young actor, and you know this is this was true certainly of him. It was true for, of a lot of these refugees in working in Hollywood. And uh, yes, if you if you, in, in, in the in the uh, biography, there's a long passage that, that recaptures that scene with Hedy Lamar, where he eventually, I think, he bites into his arm because he's so frustrated. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I think uh, we're going to have to start wrapping things up. Yes, I'm afraid so. But, uh, but to, to really get us into Bluebeard, yeah. uh, let's talk about the, uh, what you might know about Ulmer's relationship with John Carradine. And what it was like working with him? Are there any stories? Oh, you know plenty of stories.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know whether it's important for you to know it. Well, <laughs> is it fun? <laughs> yes, I think it's fun. <laughs> Are you bored by now? <laughs> okay. Some good stories. I was a little girl uh, when that picture was made. I think I was, uh, you know, uh, at that point, I was uh, like eight or nine. Yeah, that's right. And... Uh, it, Carradine was running away from his first wife who uh, was trying to get him in, you know, to get him to, to pay child support. Now, he was as poor as dad was, so part of the deal to get him to do this picture was that Carradine lived with us. And so did uh, his son, David, who was also Jack Jr., I mean, changed his name. So that there wouldn't be two, you know, Johns <laughs> running for the, the parts because it was confusing. But uh,
1: he
3: was known as the man who came to dinner, right? He oh, was man. known
2: as the man who came to dinner because my you guys mother. Can that in the
3: back? <laughs> <laughs>
2: the man who came to dinner because my mother thought he'd never go away. I mean, you know, he came to dinner and he stayed for the whole production. Because he didn't have the money, also to stay at the Garden of Allah, which was where he had been staying with Sonia, who is the lady in this film that plays uh, the jealous girl of uh, the puppeteer. So you will be seeing her also. I was the flower girl in Shakespearean costume when Caradine married her.
3: Soon after this picture. Soon after
2: this picture. And uh, so we had a lot of fun together. And he, just,
3: he saved you at the Garden of Allah, right? Yes,
2: I would have been dead. I would never have been here if a caradine hadn't jumped in the water in the pool because my mother was so, you know, distracted that she didn't notice that I had lost my swimming wings and that I was going to the bottom of the pool.
0: I gotta gotta interject. All right, can I borrow that? If in that time, a person who knew who John Carradine was was in the pool and saw John Carradine diving in after them, I think they'd rather drown. Oh god, it's Dracula.
2: (laughs) (laughs) so I think that that's enough of the stories I want to show you this this film which is was one of dad's favorite films absolutely this is one of my favorite films
0: John Carradine is outstanding the music that's Mm -hmm. why I asked about it yeah so it's Mm -hmm. really great particularly with the uh puppet scenes which Mm -hmm. uses Mm -hmm. classic uh Faust Faust right Yes, yes So, uh, really, pay attention to that. That's (laughs) Guno.
2: Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) this is really terrific.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Check back every Thursday for film reviews and Fridays for interviews. This was another special edition podcast from the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival that took place over the weekend at the Museum of Photographic Arts in Balboa Park. Make sure you subscribe to the Cinema Junkie podcast on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. I have some scary good ones coming up in October. Thanks again for spending time and sharing my celluloid addiction. Till our next film fix, I'm your resident cinema junkie, Beth Accomando.